Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of his glory to you. All right, let's get back into the book of Galatians. I, I don't know about you, what God is doing in you through this study so far, uh, but what he is doing in me, this really hit me this last week in my study, what he's, what he's doing in me is he's showing me the absolute supreme significance of Jesus. It just soaks through every page of the Galatians so far. Because of Jesus, then the book of Galatians. Here's the things that are different now, the things that we get to look at that have changed because of the person of Jesus. If it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't have the book of Galatians, would we? We wouldn't be here gathered as a church worshiping in the way that we do. I think that for too long, maybe this is just the Christian life. So all my Christian life, hopefully the Spirit does this. I have not felt the significance of Jesus in the way that I do currently. I think that's the work of the Spirit in me pointing this to me. Like the, the, How great we see who Jesus is, doesn't that buoy or swell up our, then our identity in him? Us who are called by his name, if his name is that supreme, that should swell up our identity that we have in him. If, if what he accomplished really is that great, then we get to recognize that how great it was by God's grace what he's given us. In Jesus, because of what he's accomplished. Man, I'm seeing more of the glory of Jesus. So, as we see more and more greater the glory of Jesus, doesn't that change something in our affections for a good God who would give Jesus to us by his grace? Throughout Galatians, Paul's arguing for the significance of Jesus and what that changes. Who Jesus is and what he does actually means something for his readers, for the Galatians, and for us today. See, to hold on to life before Jesus is just is to not really understand who Jesus is, right? To hold on to pieces of the law is not to really understand who Jesus is and what he accomplished. To continue to live along the lines of the logic of the world And not the logic of the gospel of grace is to completely miss the point about Jesus. The significance of Jesus is gloriously enormous. (laughs) And it meant some radical, big changes for those people in Paul's day. Big changes in in the religious world of Paul's day and the faith practices of God's people. Before Jesus, we, we, should, we should know this by now, God's people were under the law to observe it. We've been seeing that all the way through Galatians so far. After Jesus, we now know the gospel of grace. And so kids, since you aren't out there for the elementary kids, I didn't dismiss you, I couldn't. <laughs> I have a question for you. How are we saved? Any, any kid, just shout it out. How are we saved? David, I can always count on you. Yes. Is that what you were going to say too? Miles? Yeah, by faith alone in Jesus. So what does that mean? It means we are not justified by what we do, not, by, not justified by works of the law, by faith in Jesus. This is dramatic. We have locks, uh, the law and works on one side, and we have faith and grace on the other. Jesus had dramatic implications to the religious world of Paul's day. 
a, a, a Jewish world that was largely centered around observance of the law. That, and this was built upon generation after generation after generation. But now, because of Jesus, things are dramatically different. Dramatically different, yet, this is important, please catch this, dramatically different, yet while still maintaining incredible continuity with the Old Testament and how God has always done things. Our text this morning is going to further explore this for us, and, and Paul is going to turn from, well, from the first two chapters, we saw him use his personal story to show some of this, and, and last week, the beginning of chapter three, we saw him use the Galatian experience to show some of this. Well, this week, he's now going to zoom all the way out and take a really broad perspective He's going to show us the significance of Jesus throughout salvation history. Salvation history being the master plan that God had for salvation through the ages. So how does Jesus fit into a history so dominated by the law? Well, so far we've seen that Paul has argued against the Judaizers that there needs to be some obedience to the Old Testament law like circumcision in order to first become a Christian. He said, nope, that's not the case. We've seen him argue against the Jewish Christians. Some Jewish Christians are saying you still need to observe some of the law to, to improve upon your faith or to, to keep your faith in some way. And Paul says, no, that's not true. In fact, faith alone in Jesus, as David has reminded us, by God's grace is all that is required to be saved. So it begs a question, doesn't it? So why then the law? Why did God give it at all? What's the role of the law? How does the law and faith then interact? And to get at those questions, Paul this morning is going to answer this overarching question for us, if I can get the slide to go. There it is. How do we understand the law and faith now in salvation history, a way zoomed out view? And as he answers this big question, my prayer has been that God is going to treat us. He's going to treat us and showing the significance of Jesus through all of it. So Christian, as we go through our text this morning, be looking for the greatness of Jesus. If we don't see that, we've missed the point this morning. All right, let's get at it. Open up your Bibles, the book of Galatians, toward the back of your Bibles after First and Second Corinthians. I hear no Bible starting, so you're probably already there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some on the table right there in front of the AV booth. If you don't own one, we'd love to gift you one of those. You can take one of those home. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3 tomorrow, uh, today. And we've got a lot of text. We're going to start in verse 7 for this morning, and our text for this morning ends in chapter 4, verse 7. So about a chapter there. We're going to take it in four different sections, but we're going to need to move relatively quickly. Remember our, our context as we get in here. Last week we saw that Paul is arguing from the Galatian experience for the, for the validity or the effectiveness for faith alone to secure salvation. Paul's primary piece of evidence was the obvious work of the Spirit that the, Galatian experience, that the Galatian Christians were seeing. The Spirit who only comes by faith. Faith is the key, just as we saw in our last verse from last week, verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So faith is the basis of salvation, and in Abraham we see it has a precedent in the Old Testament. Is here in the Old Testament is exactly where Paul needs to start if he's going to show us how throughout salvation history do we see the law and faith interact. All right, this is what he's going to do. He's going to springboard off of verse 6 from last week and flow right into our text for this week. And so let's read the first section of our text this week. Let's start in verse 6 and then read all the way through verse 14. This is Galatians chapter 3, 6 through 14. 
Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged from a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Right off the bat, Paul hammers this again. Faith is not a new concept. (laughs) It's not just a New Testament word, so to speak. It's not that the saints of the Old Testament were saved by obedience through the law, and people in the New Testament now are saved by faith. No, rather Paul is taking pains here to show us the continuity of faith by God's grace as the only way anyone was ever saved at any point in history. Those of faith are the sons of Abraham. Gentiles, those who are not Jews today, who place their faith in Jesus, are sons of the Old Testament Abraham. Through faith, guys, this is miraculous. Think about this. (laughs) Through faith, Gentiles, us, (laughs) can enter right standing with God right alongside the Jews, right alongside with Abraham. We get to inherit the blessing that God promised to Abraham because of faith. That is absolutely scandalous to the Judaizers. So, so you don't have to obey the law anymore to, to show that you're separate from all the pagan nations and everybody else to show you're God's people? Paul says, no. All you need is faith by God's grace. Paul's emphatic here. It's always been that way, he argues. Verse 8. Scripture in all of its breadth, all of its depth, proves this in likely conflating Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 18.18. Paul combines these two verses and he shows us that all nations... That is, Gentiles to us too, will be blessed along with Abraham. And what could that blessing mean except to be justified by faith before a holy God that Paul points out is what God was foreseeing and declaring? What a blessing indeed. Blessing, we get to be blessed alongside Abraham. We get to be justified before a holy God through faith by grace. Faith argues Paul results in a blessing defined as a sinful people, declared righteous before a holy God. What's the word for that? Grace, that's, that's good. Well, what's the word the last couple of weeks that we've been using? It starts with a J to be that. Declared righteous before God. Justify. Yeah, we are justified. That's the blessing that we get to inherit that God promised to Abraham. It's always been that way. Think about this. God declared that promise to Abraham before the Jewish nation existed before the law was given, before circumcision was even an act. Friends, the God of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the God that is revealed in the New Testament. 
The way he graciously chose to save people throughout the Old Testament is exactly the same way he graciously chooses to save people today. It's always been through faith. Now, today we understand that it's through Jesus, don't we? We know who the Messiah is. But it's always been faith, not works, that God requires for right standing before him. Faith in God to do what only God can do, to declare us righteous before him. It's always been that way. It's always been faith that results in blessing, that results in our justification. But what about then of the law? Well, the law results in something very different. The law results in a curse. How so? Verse 10. Paul here quotes Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. It's a famous section in which Moses, he he engages all of Israel. He places half of Israel on one mountain, half of Israel on another mountain, and, and he vividly pronounces over them what will happen if they disobey the law. He pronounces curses over them. In these two sections, these two chapters of Deuteronomy, chapter 27 and chapter 28, the curses, you could, we could sum it up this way. They mean, it means separation. It means being separated from the promised land, to be separated from God's people. To be cursed was to be separated. Disobeying any part of the law would bring down upon the people a curse. Any act of disobedience brought curses down upon the head of the lawbreaker. Why? (laughs) Because even one sin is enough to incur God's wrath. How is that fair? It's fair because God is that holy and our sin is that heinous. The law helps us to teach us this. The chasm between the two are infinite, and that is a problem, my friends, for all of humanity. Before God, who is perfectly holy, no one can attain right standing by trying to perfectly obey a law that they perfectly cannot obey. The chasm is infinite. No one can perfectly obey that law. Abraham can't. You can't. Paul couldn't. The Judaizers couldn't. I I certainly can't. If we don't perfectly obey the law, that then results only in a curse for us. There's no blessing. There's no justification for us. And so in ancient Israel, God gave them a sacrificial system to deal with the sin that, that was obvious to happen. That was, that was, what's the word if it's going to happen? It's not obvious. Like, it's for sure going to happen. Inevitable. Thank you. That's, it's inevitably going to happen, this sin. But that system was imperfect, wasn't it? It could never sufficiently bridge this infinite gap between our sin and a perfectly holy God. And besides, the human heart is still the human heart. We, by nature, are sinful. It's it's always impossible to perfectly keep the law. So the sacrificial system and the sacrifices needed to be made over and over and over and over again. The law didn't change the human heart. Ancient Israel could never do enough works or Israel's doing to obtain salvation would always fail. They're not a solution for the human condition. Never has been, never will be. Something entirely different was needed. Or better, someone entirely different was needed. Someone who can perfectly keep the law Someone who will never fail. Someone who is so perfect as to bridge that infinite gap between our sin and a perfectly holy God. Someone to forever, once and for all, deal with the curse of the law 
for us, someone to take our place. My friends, are you sensing the significance of Jesus? Nod your head if that's true. It's really helpful for me. Thank you. Good. I hope so. Verse 13. This is what Jesus did. He removed the curse of the law from us. We couldn't do that. Jesus did that for us. How did he do it? He didn't wave his hand and somehow magically the curse just disappeared. He didn't take the curse and just put it someplace else. But rather, he became a curse for us. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, sometimes a criminal, if their sin was heinous enough, would be executed, and then their body would be hung on a pole or hung from a tree for everybody to see during the day. It was a public spectacle that warned other people to not do what that guy did. Otherwise, you could end up in the same place physically. So here's the picture. Jesus took that disgraceful public shame upon himself for us when he was raised on the cross. He took on the very curse that was inescapable for us because we are by nature inescapably sinful. Jesus bore the punishment due to our sin. Jesus experienced the separation from the Father due to our sin. Jesus was cursed so that we are blessed. By faith in Christ Jesus, we are given justification before a perfectly holy God and then given the Holy Spirit as a sure sign of that salvation. All of this because of Jesus. So do you see? (laughs) The blessing promised to Abraham, this blessing that's our only hope for salvation, is experienced only in Jesus. The curse of the law is perfectly satisfied in Jesus. Jesus' work perfectly fulfilled all of the requirements of the Old Testament. There is perfect continuity between Jesus and the Old Testament. Jesus didn't change the Old Testament. The rules didn't somehow now change. Rather, he graciously satisfied all the requirements of a holy God that we see in the Old Testament and graciously brought us in to enjoy justification along with Abraham if we only, what? If we work hard enough to make him happy? If we try to obey the law really, 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 really well? Yes, but I'm not done with all my questions. That's right. (laughs) Because of that, it means it doesn't matter how you vote on your salvation, right? Can I please get an amen for that? It does not, your salvation is not dependent on how you vote. It doesn't, it's not dependent on how much of the Bible you read, how often you attend church. Jesus has satisfied all of God's requirements upon us for salvation. He did what we could never do. The law results in a curse, but because of Jesus, faith results in a blessing. This is Paul's first answer to our overarching question for this morning. We need to understand that the law and faith throughout salvation history results in different results. I guess I can use that. It yields in different results. The law yields a curse and faith yields a blessing. But that's not the only difference here. In addition to yielding different results, they also are simply different in kind. Let's read on, verses 15 through 20, to see how. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, 
referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Here is what Paul is saying. The law and faith aren't even on the same playing field. It's not like they're two sports teams vying for the same position in the playoffs or it's voting season. It's not that there are two different political candidates vying for the same position of power. They are fundamentally different in kind, seen by how they are different both in precedent and also power. Verses 15 through 17. The promise that God made to Abraham to justify him by faith was made long before, 430 years before the law came around. God's promise has precedent over the law. So God's covenant or his promise with Abraham is not the same thing as the law, much to the dismay of the, of the Judaizers. This is what they did. They, they conflated the two. Notice how in verse 17, Paul intentionally separates them. Covenant promise is different than law. The law can't arrive then later on the scene and then adjust what God has already promised. God promised justification by faith, And the law is powerless, praise God, the law is powerless to change that. The law can't keep God from keeping his promises. But God didn't just promise to justify Abraham, did he? It's actually a little bit crazier than that. He also promised to justify Gentiles by faith too. Or in the words of Paul here in verse 16, God promised to justify Abraham and his offspring or seed, that is Christ representing all who are in Christ. No longer is right standing before God based on ethnicity or distinct people groups, but rather it is based on everyone who is in Christ, the offspring, singular, pointing to the unity that we have in the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. And so, the law and the promise of justification by faith are different in precedent and also different in power. Justification by faith, God promised first, and the law is powerless to change that. But why again? Verse 18. Because they are fundamentally different in kind. The law and the promise are not the same thing. They're not equal. The law entails working and doing. But the promise was given by grace. This is Paul's second answer to our question this morning. The law is based on works, and so it's inferior, whereas the promise of faith, justification through faith, is based on grace and is superior. It is impossible, says Paul, for the promised inheritance, that is, Christ and the salvation he brings, to come by the law. God didn't set it up that way. God promised by grace to accomplish through Jesus what we never could. To then turn around and say, well, actually, you need to work really hard at some things to somehow improve upon that or somehow keep that is to completely miss the point about grace. 
is to miss the point about what a promise is. Because God promised it by grace through faith, not the law, and because God always keeps his promises, then we can be assured the law cannot override or edit or change or adjust or add to or subtract from or enlarge or weaken or modify or tweak or otherwise interfere with God's promises. It doesn't have the power. It's always been that way. The law and faith are fundamentally different in kind. And picking up from our theme from last week, this is another astounding and glorious example of the logic of the gospel of grace. But if the law and faith are so fundamentally different, and if from the beginning God's plan all along was to justify graciously through faith, what's the point of the law? (laughs) If the law is inferior to faith, why did God give the law to Moses in the first place? Well, Paul anticipates this question, and he's going to now start to answer that for us in verses 19 through 20. But he actually ends up using more space to then prove the inferiority again of the law. Verse 19. So why the law? Well, Paul says he gave the law because of sin, because we naturally do things contrary to the law. Well, that seems really confusing. But we've got to wait to verses 21 through 25 to understand what Paul says here, because then Paul goes right back and and, and just in case we now think that the law and faith are equal, Paul reinforces again, they're, they're not equal. For now, with the, with the rule of the law, I want us to see that Paul here in verse 19 clearly declares the law was necessary. It had a role. But then we're going to see how it's inferior again. Really quickly, there's two things here in the end of verse 19 and verse 20. First, the law is temporary. That is, it was added until the offspring that is Christ should come. The law had a beginning, and the law had also an end date. God's promise to justify by faith, on the other hand, is eternal. Paul's comparing these two again. Second, now while the end of verse 19 and verse 20 are pretty difficult to understand, this is how I understand them. This is what I think makes the most sense of it. I think it's most likely that the end of verse 19 and verse 20 meaning that the law was put in place by angels and a human intermediary, meaning Moses, as a covenant that requires two parties to agree and to move forward in. So this is what happened at Sinai in the giving of the law. If Israel does this, then God will do that. And the reference to angels is interesting, isn't it? That's not recorded in Scripture anywhere that the angels were present, but it seemed to be a part of Jewish tradition. So in Acts 7, for example, it's actually referred to twice that angels were somehow present. Probably Jewish tradition. Now contrast that, how the law was given, to God's promise to Abraham. God's promise to Abraham was graciously given as a deal that's done because God himself, God who is one, because God himself, the one party, would not, is not dependent upon the agreement of two parties that he himself would accomplish it. Abraham didn't have to do anything to ensure that God was going to keep his promise to justify by faith. But all of that begs, begs, begs this question. All right, we get it. The law is inferior to faith on so many different levels. So isn't then God inconsistent in giving it in the first place? Doesn't it contradict or cloud or obfuscate 
It's the first time I've ever used that word. Uh, but I think, it, I think it makes sense. And I actually had to Google it. I Googled it to make sure. I thought it made sense. It does. It means like to cloud. And, and I actually had to Google how to pronounce it. It's obfuscate, right? If that's not right, somebody say no. Obfuscate. It, yes, it, thank you. Yes, obfuscate. It clouds it. It makes it, makes it muddy. Doesn't the law then just make muddy faith? Well, Paul now is going to unpack the role of the law in salvation history. Let's read it, verses 21 through 25. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Is the law then contradictory to faith? Paul's really clear, right? Absolutely not. He, I don't know how he could be actually more emphatic here. These words that he uses expresses horror at the even thought of it. That's not the response that we would expect Paul to give right here, is it? It seems like so far the entire argument in the book of Galatians runs counter to that. That the law is somehow not needed at all. It doesn't really have a place. It's it's, it's, it's more than just inferior. It just muddies everything up. It, it clouds everything. And so we expect Paul to say, yeah, right. So now just completely disregard it. It, it. it was a mistake of sorts. Rather, Paul is shocked at even such a, such a suggestion. Why? Not only because the law was given by a good and perfect God who doesn't make mistakes, but because the law has a needed, good, and distinct role in salvation history, a role very different than the role of faith. So Paul is essentially saying, don't confuse their roles. In essence, Paul has been arguing here throughout Galatians to stop giving the law the role only faith can fill. In other words, this, this, might, this might help us, don't rely on Joe Biden to pitch in the World Series. It's not his role right? He's not a pitcher. So don't do that with the law and with faith. Don't confuse the rules. So it begs the question, what then is the role of the law in salvation history? Well, he starts in the negative. It's clearly not to give life. It's clearly not to give right standing before God. It's clearly not to justify us before a holy God. To expect, to expect that from the law is to be unfair to the law and confuse its role with the role of faith. Rather, verse 22, all of Scripture reveals the divinely given role of the Old Testament is actually to serve the role of faith, not contradict it. Paul here uses, he uses the imagery of a jail to try to get at this. The law's role here is seen as Scripture is to lock up the whole world as inmates under the power of the jailer of sin. The assigned jail time, so to speak, lasts until verse 22. The object of our faith, Jesus and his work, was revealed. Or in a second analogy, verse 24, rather than the the picture of a jail, Paul here uses the picture of a guardian or a tutor. 
Now, there has been a lot written about what exactly is Paul getting at with this word, what imagery is raised here. In Roman times, this word referred to a household slave whose job it was to raise a child from about age six to late adolescence. They would train them, educate them, protect them, discipline them. They were kind of like nannies on steroids. They were there for a long time with the child all the time. How do we raise this child up? In fact, I found an artist's sketch of what these uh, tutors may have looked like back in Roman times, and it was kind of like that. <laughs> I don't know how they got that picture. Uh, it's a long time ago. But these tutors, these nannies, they, a lot of them had a reputation for being really harsh, like being, you better not step out of line. I was going to whack your hand. Actually, it was, it was worse than just whacking a hand with a ruler, but you better not step out of line. But the, the goal for all of these super nannies, so to speak, was the same. It was to help the child grow up and learn what does it mean to be an adult in Roman society. In this way, the role of the law then, too, lasted until, it had a role, it lasted until the object of our faith, Jesus, was revealed. So, again, what exactly was this time-bound role of the law as jailer and guardian in salvation history? Well, twice in our passage, Paul insists that the law existed, verse 22, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And in verse 24, the law existed so that we might be justified by faith. How so? The law reveals our need for Jesus. The law has a role to serve the role of faith. This is absolutely astounding. Because even how I said earlier that we have works and law on this side versus faith and grace on this side, that isn't completely accurate. Now, if we were to look to the law and both of these as different ways for salvation, that's accurate. But remember, they aren't even on the same playing field. In reality, they aren't enemies. They aren't opponents. They aren't even on the same plane. Rather, the law serves faith. The law, in this way, the law made obvious what was true all along. (laughs) We are by nature sinners, lawbreakers, who could never gain right standing with God on our own. No longer can we trick ourselves into thinking we can justify ourselves by how we live. The law put in plain language, the curse our sin put us under all along. The law gave a tangible, measurable expression of the human condition. The law made us aware of the reality of our bondage. These four walls of the jail cell, the incessant corrections and stinging rebukes from our guardian, reveals to us our true state, a state of being hopelessly and helplessly unable to save ourselves. It reveals the fatal flaw in the logic of the world. This logic that we could somehow earn our salvation or somehow deserve our salvation. The astounding logic of the gospel of grace is our only hope. The law prepares us to accept that by faith we are saved and not of ourselves. So my friends, rather than the law being evil, rather than the law being unnecessary, Paul is actually arguing that the law's role in salvation history, all the way zoomed out, was in reality gracious and absolutely necessary. And that's not the stereotype of the law, is it? 
we should be thanking God in this way for the law. Not, 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 not because it saves us, but because it points us to the one who does. It takes away our hope that we can possibly save ourselves, save ourselves, and it points us to the one who can indeed save us, the one who is our only hope. And now that our hope has indeed come, and now that by God's grace, we as Christians who put our faith in Jesus and what he's done for us, we are now no longer in need of the work of a jailer, no longer in need of the work of our guardian, verse 25. That work has been completed. Friends, if you have not yet learned the lesson of the law, that you cannot save yourself, you are still under its curse. Your sin still condemns you. You don't know what yet it is like to receive the blessing, that faith in Jesus alone, the freedom that can bring from the curse of the law. If that's you, if that's in your place, haven't learned the lesson of the law yet, I still think I can save myself. (laughs) My plea to you is to compare your life to life the law says your life should be like. Compare the two. Learn the lesson of the law. This was its role. All the ways that you fall short of the law, all the ways that you fail, all the ways that you mess up, all these wrestlings with your sin, they are all evidences that you need a Savior. Stop trying to save yourself. Turn to Jesus. Trust him to do what you never could. Have faith that Jesus did all that was needed for you to be justified before a holy God. What Jesus has accomplished for us is absolutely amazing. It's astounding. And Paul is going to turn to that next. Now, what we're about to read, my prayers, that this puts you in awe of our Savior. Let, let, the, let this text deepen your awe, the significance of Jesus. Let's read the rest of our text this morning. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 26, and we're going to run through verse 7 of chapter 4. So starting in chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Because of faith in Jesus, we, both Jew and Gentile, are now in Jesus. This makes all the difference. If you are a Christian, you are no longer under the curse of the law. We're no longer inmates. We're no longer minors who are not yet of legal age. 
No longer slaves, but we are now children of God with all the rights and the privileges that means. We're part of God's family. In this perfect plan of God from eternity past, God chose to graciously use faith in Jesus to what? Adopt us into his family. Faith in Jesus graciously results in adoption into God's family. This is Paul's fourth answer to our question this morning. Why is this true? Because of the union with Christ that faith brings. Baptism, it's a beautiful picture of this. Verse 27, all who trust in Jesus have gone from death to life. They've taken their old, dirty clothes, those clothes of an inmate, of orphaned slaves, and they exchange those, and they put on brand new clothes as children of God in our union with Christ. We put on Christ. This is a radical union. Verse 28, bringing together the Jew and the Gentile, the slave and the free, the man and the woman into a brand new family where all of them enjoy absolute equal access to God, equal salvation, equal dignity. There are no levels of who are more saved than others. There are no societal barriers that dictate who gets to enjoy communion with God and who does not. Jesus has changed the game, or rather, He's fulfilled God's plan from all along. The gracious gift of faith in Jesus puts us in Jesus and makes us, verse 29, full, legitimate heirs to the gracious promise God made to Abraham, a promise to be justified. This is this incredible significance of Jesus. God God took it upon himself in Jesus to justify us and put us in right relationship with himself. We are no longer enslaved to whatever hollow things we use to pursue for our value and for our life. These elementary principles of the world, chapter 4, verse 3. These other so-called gods. These other evil spiritual influences. These, these things that waged war on our hearts and took us captive in our futile attempts to find life in them. All of them lost their power to enslave us. How? Verses 4 through 6. By the birth of a Jewish baby, at the perfect time God planned from eternity past. Jesus was fully Jewish and fully God. Fully man, fully God. A baby who grew up to take upon himself the curse of the law for us so that we could be free from it radically changing our relationship to God from one of separation to one now as family. And he gave us the family mark. He gave us the Holy Spirit, the seal of our salvation. Through the Spirit, we can now personally and intimately call out to God, this holy God, as our Father. No more distance. No more needing to go through a priest or a sacrificial system. Rather, because of Jesus, verse 7, we are forever united with him and adopted from the pit of cursed, orphaned inmates and slaves, that imagery that Paul used, into the very family of God. The significance of Jesus is staggering. I don't completely understand it. It's overwhelming to me. Christian, Jesus is your confidence. He's your freedom He's your joy. He's your redeemer. He's the source of your blessing. He's your life. 
He's your inheritance. God saw fit to give us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us ever and only by putting us in Jesus through faith. The before Jesus and after Jesus and salvation history is dramatic. For Paul's Galatians readers, this is his way of demonstrating throughout salvation history that there's no going back to the law. Everything's changed. To entertain such an idea that we can go back or we should go back is to completely misunderstand the place of the law and faith in God's master plan of salvation. There is no, gloriously, there is no going back to the law. Look at this. This is just from our passage today. Because of Jesus, we go from cursed to blessed, from not justified to justified, from living by the law to living by promise, from no life to being dead to life eternally, from inmates to freed men and women, from underage minors to full privileged adults, from orphaned slaves to sons and daughters, from having no inheritance to heirs. This is the significance of Jesus. It's because of who he is, and it's because of what he's done. And we, Christian, we are now in him, and we get to enjoy all those benefits. All that it means to be a part of God's family, we get to enjoy those now. What a savior. What a good God to graciously put that in place for us when we didn't deserve it. We celebrate this. Every week. God, I, um, I thank you for what you've done for us. Uh, the depths of it, I, it seems like I can't even get close to the significance of what you've done. What you've done by sending your son Jesus. What that meant for your plan for salvation. As we see throughout scripture and as time continues to go. Everything changed. Thank, thank you for that. You knew we could never keep the law. You gave us the law to show us that. To show us that we need a savior. You primed the pump, so to speak. We needed it. Thank you for your grace in that. I even pray this morning, if, if there are those here joining us this morning who have not placed their trust in Jesus alone to save them, Spirit, I pray you draw them to yourself and you would save them. Would you show them they can never save themselves? Everything else is hollow and empty. I pray that you would save them. I pray that next week they'd be able to join us in celebrating communion here. So even as we celebrate what you've done for us, remind us again as we take communion of it, would you apply it to us so we can, can understand it to a deeper level? Would our love for you grow as a result? Thank you for your grace, God. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.